Hi. Thank you very much for coming. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm going to talk a little bit about, about my book and then what George said, but you didn't hear. Uh, uh, yeah, people, uh, obviously, as an author, you're often asked, like, you know, what was the starting point? What gave you the idea for the book? And, and actually, I think this book, the idea came when I was halfway through writing a previous book of mine, The Psychopath Test. Uh, so I'm going to talk a little bit about that. In The Psychopath Test, I, I, I learnt how to become a uh, professional psychopath spotter. I went on a course. Uh, I have a, I'm now certified, and I've got a certificate for attendance, uh, and I'm a very adept psychopath spotter. So I was wondering what I should do with my psychopath spotting skills and my first thought was that I wouldn't put them to philanthropic good uh, <laughs> what I'd do is think about everybody in my past who had crossed me uh, to see which of them I could out as psychopaths um, so I did that for a while I outed as a psychopath uh, a Sunday Times columnist called A.A. A. Gill uh, <laughs> who had written a a, a column about how he'd shot a baboon on safari because, like all of us, he wondered what it would be like to shoot a person, which is classic psychopath. Um, plus, he always gives my television documentaries very bad reviews, which is classic psychopath. <laughs> um, I actually bumped into A.A. Gill about a year ago at an award ceremony, um, and he came bounding over to me and said, I, I hear you've put me in your book about psychopaths. Uh, don't worry, I would never sue another journalist. Uh, so I said... You know how you wrote that column about how you'd shot a baboon on safari because, like all of us, you wondered what it would be like to shoot a person? I said, it's not all of us. It's not a normal thing to think. It's just you. <laughs> uh, so he said, well, you don't hunt, so you wouldn't understand. So I said, I sell more books than you do. <laughs> so I won. I should say I won psychopathically. Uh, anyway, but then I thought, no, I won't use my, my psychopath spotting skills just to do that. Uh, it was the man who taught me how to do it, this, this eminent psychologist called Robert Hare. And he said to me, you know, the biggest story in the world, and nobody's thinking about this, and at the time no one was thinking about this, which is that the statistic is that one in a hundred regular people, according to Hare, is a psychopath. So there's 200 people in the room. Two of you are psychopaths. Um, but the figure rises to 4% of uh, business leaders uh, and uh, people high up in governments. Uh, so uh, you're four times more likely to have a psychopath at the top of the tree uh, than you are at the bottom. And Hare said to me, this is, this is the most extraordinary story, if you think about it, that there's this particular mental disorder, psychopathy, that's so uh, prevalent, it's actually remoulded society all wrong, and it's the reason for the wars and the economic injustice, corporate psychopaths. So Hare said to me, what you need to do is go and get yourself some corporate psychopaths to interview. Uh, so I decided to give it a try. I wrote to uh, Bernie Madoff, and I said, can I come and... <laughs> interview you in prison to find out if you're a psychopath and he didn't write back and so then I changed tack I wrote to a famous um, asset stripper um, with an Australian connection uh, called Chainsaw Al Dunlap um, who used to be Kerry Packer's right hand man right 
Um, and he would go into a failing business and he'd shut down 30% of the, fa- of the factories and he'd, he'd fire tens of thousands of people with a joke. So there's a famous story about him that uh, somebody once said to him, I've just bought myself a new car. And he said, you may have a new car, but I'll tell you what, you don't have a job. Uh, so I wrote to Al Dunlap and I said, um, I believe that you may have a very special brain anomaly. Can I come and interview you about your special brain anomaly that makes you fearless and interested in the predatory spirit? And he said, come on over. Um, and I remember that one of the items on the psychopath checklist uh, is cunning manipulative. Uh, another item is uh, the ability to uh, eat an onion without... Uh... So, I... <laughs> I don't know if that's the right town for that trip. Uh, so, um, uh, so I went to Chainsaw House Dunlap's house, which you could, as you can tell, is, was full of paintings and sculptures of predatory animals. Uh, and he gave me a tour of his garden. He said, over there you've got lions and tigers. And uh, he was saying this in a less effeminate way. Um, <laughs> I, said to him, I, I said to him, I was very nervous. I said to him... Um, uh, it's, it's almost as if Midas and the Queen of Narnia flew over a particularly fierce zoo and turned everything into stone and transported everything here. And he said, what? And I said, nothing. And I said, it was just a jumble of words that became confused in my mouth. And he said, OK. So then we went into his kitchen and it was... Um, Al and his bodyguard, Sean, and his wife, Judy. And I said, you know how I said in my email that you might have a very special brain anomaly uh, that makes you fearless and interested in the predatory spirit? And he said, yeah, it's an amazing theory. It's like Star Trek. You're going where no man has gone before. And I said, well... (laughs) I said, some psychiatrists would say that this makes you... (laughs) He said, what? And I said, I said, a psychopath. And in fact, in my pocket, I have a list. I have a checklist of psychopathic character traits. Can I go through it with you? And I think what saved me is that Al Dunlap, like all of us, loves nothing more than a mental health checklist. And so, he said, OK. So I, I went through the list. I said, item one, grandiose sense of self-worth, which would have been a hard one for him to deny because he was standing underneath a giant oil painting of himself. Um, <laughs> He said, you've got to believe in you. Um, we went down the list, um, shallow affect. He said, who wants to be weighed down with nonsense emotions? And uh, I said, cunning manipulative. He said, that's leadership. So he went down the list, because turning. Um, but I did notice something happening to me the day that I was at Al Dunlap's house, which was that every time he said something that wasn't psychopathic, I thought, well, that's OK. I won't put that in my book. So he said no to juvenile delinquency, many short-term marital relationships. He's only been married twice. And I thought, that's fine, I won't put that in my book. And then I realised that becoming a psychopath spotter had kind of turned me a little bit psychopathic in my desire to just shove our Dunlap into this box marked psychopath, you know, this, this kind of quest to, to define him by his maddest edges. And when I got back to London, I I had dinner with a friend of mine, a documentary maker called Adam Curtis, 
And he said, well, it's what we all do as journalists, isn't it? We go around the world with our notepads in our hands and we just wait for the gems. And the gems are always the outermost aspects of that person's personality. And like weird medieval tapestry makers, we stitch together the gems and we leave all the ordinary stuff on the floor. Uh, and Adam said, you know, we all know that what we do is odd, but none of us talk about it. And, and Adam's right, and I think the, the mainstream media is, is full of people looking for the, the right sort of madness, you know, for, for our entertainment. And in fact, um, afterwards I met a woman who was a guest booker for Jerry Springer uh, and Jeremy Kyle, and uh, she said that she had a special trick that she would utilise when deciding which guests to book for the show. She said what she'd do is she'd ask them what medication they were on. And she said, if it was like a kind of scary-sounding medication, like lithium, she said, you wouldn't want them on the show because you don't want them to go on the show and then come off and then kill themselves. Um, she said, but uh, if, it was a, if it was a medication that implied a kind of fun mental illness, like Prozac, she said, that's perfect, because they're, they're, they're a little bit crazy, but they're not so crazy that we'll feel bad about watching them, you know, because you want smoke and mirrors exploitation, you don't want actual exploitation. Um, so Prozac is the perfect drug to indicate the right sort of madness for our entertainment for daytime television. She said that she... Um, didn't always get it right. Like, one time, they did, like, a show about extreme bodybuilders, and they had some bodybuilder on the show, and everybody was, like, laughing at the bodybuilder because he was, like, this extreme bodybuilder. And then after the show, he phoned her up, and while he was on the phone, he slit his wrists. Um, and, you know, labelling is kind of out of control in America. It's, it's getting a little bit better, but, but a couple of years ago, there was this real desire to label children as bipolar um, because they would score high on the bipolar checklist. So children as young as two and three would be labelled bipolar and put on antipsychotic medication. Uh, literally, two-year-old children were being labelled bipolar because they had temper tantrums. Uh, and one little girl called Rebecca Riley, who I write about in my book, The Psychopath Test, died. She was given a... She was four years old and she was given a... Um, uh, overdose of her antipsychotic medication. And now, obviously, those are extreme cases, but I think extreme cases of something that we can generally agree is bad, the, the, the over-labelling of people, defining people by their outermost edges. And I'd go around the world when my book, The Psychopath Test, came out, including I gave a talk at the Sydney Opera House and so on, and everybody agreed that it was bad. What I was describing was something bad... And then we'd all go home and we would all do exactly the same thing on social media. We would define somebody by their outermost edges, we'd label them, we'd reduce them, we'd, 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 we'd cast them out. And I just began to notice, I, 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 I couldn't ignore the hypocrisy of this anymore. It was so easy to, to talk about abuses of power when the people abusing their power were like over there. But we were the ones on social media abusing our power. Social media had gone for this incredible place of, of, of curiosity. You know, in the early days of social media, it was like a, one, it was like a place of great empathy and curiosity. You, everybody suddenly had windows into other people's lives. And people would, like, admit shameful secrets about themselves. And other people would say, oh, my God, I'm exactly the same. Uh, it was like a kind of de-stigmatising, de-shaming place. Um, 
And I think what happened was that we, we voiceless people suddenly realised that they had a voice and it was powerful and eloquent. And when powerful people transgressed, we realised that we could do something about it. We could get them with a weapon that we understood and they didn't, a social media shaming. So if a newspaper columnist wrote something racist or homophobic, we could, we could get them with this weapon. And it worked. You know, suddenly there was a levelling of the playing field. There was like a kind of democratisation of justice. Uh, and it was... It was really good, I think, in the early days. And then something happened, I think, that we fell in love with it so much with getting people who were misusing their privilege that a day without a shaming felt kind of weird and empty. Like, if there was, somebody, if there was nobody around that we could get for misusing their privilege, it was like a day picking fingernails and treading water. And into this atmosphere wandered an unsuspecting woman called Justine Sacco and I'm going to tell you very quickly the story of Justine Sacco. Justine had uh, 170 Twitter followers she was a PR woman in New York City and she'd tweet little acerbic jokes to her followers like this one which was on a plane from New York to London so she would chuckle to herself and press send and got no replies and felt that sad feeling that we all feel when the internet doesn't congratulate us for being funny. <laughs> By the way, is my, mic, is my mic okay? You can hear everything I'm saying, right? Okay. Good. Um, <laughs> anyway, Justine got to Heathrow and she had a little bit of time to kill before uh, the next leg, which was from London to Cape Town. So she thought up another funny little acerbic joke and tweeted it to her 170 followers. So she got no replies, got on the plane, turned off her phone, fell asleep, woke up 11 hours later, turned on her phone, and straight away there was a text from somebody she hadn't spoken to for about 20 years that said, I am so sorry to see what's happening to you. And then another text from her best friend, you need to phone me now. You are the worldwide number one trending topic on Twitter. <laughs> And what had happened was that one of her 170 followers had sent the joke to a Gorka journalist called Sam Biddle, and he retweeted it to his 15,000 followers. Later, I asked Sam Biddle how that felt to have started the onslaught against Justine, and he said it felt delicious. And then he said, but I'm sure she's fine now. But she wasn't fine, because while she slept, Twitter took control of her life and dismantled it piece by piece. And by the way, when I say Twitter, what I mean is us. First, there were the philanthropists. Can everyone read these? Then came the beyond horrified. Was anybody on Twitter that night? Yeah, a few people. So obviously Justine's joke overwhelmed your Twitter feed the way it did mine. I thought what everybody thought that night who was on Twitter, which was, wow, somebody's fucked. And I <laughs> sat up in bed and I propped the pillow behind my head. <laughs> and then, like about five seconds later, I thought, I'm not sure that that joke was intended to be racist. I mean, obviously it wasn't 
it wasn't a great joke, but maybe instead of gleefully flaunting her privilege, what she was trying to do was mock the gleeful flaunting of privilege. She was acknowledging her privilege and ridiculing it. I mean, there is a, there's a fine comedy tradition of this stuff, Randy Newman and South Park, and maybe Justine's crime was just not being quite as good at it as Randy Newman. Later on, I met Justine in a bar a couple of weeks later. I'm still the only writer that she's ever spoken to about this. And I asked her to explain the joke, and she was just crushed. I mean, she said that she'd, she'd cried out her body weight. Um, and she said, living in America puts us in a bit of a bubble when it comes to what is going on in the third world. I was making fun of that bubble. Um, anyway, it began to get darker. And then came the calls for her to be fired. Hashtag getting fired. Thousands of people around the world decided it was their duty to get Justine fired. And then corporations got involved, hoping to sell their products on the back of Justine's annihilation. A lot of companies were making good money out of Justine that night. You know, Usually Justine was Googled 40 times a month. Um, that night and the few days after, she was Googled 1,220,000 times, um, which means Google made you know, a few hundred thousand dollars out of Justine. Uh, whereas those of us doing the actual shaming, we got nothing. We were like unpaid shaming interns for Google. <laughs> And then came the trolls. Somebody else wrote, somebody HIV positive should rape this bitch and then we'll find out if her skin colour protects her from AIDS. And nobody went after that person. That person got a free pass. It's like our shaming brains are so primitive that we can only handle shaming one person a night. It was too complicated to also shame somebody who was inappropriately shaming Justine. Demented bitch. The language is always much worse when a woman is getting shamed than a man. When a man's getting shamed, it's, I'm going to get you fired. When a woman's getting shamed, it's, I'm going to get you fired and raped and murdered and cut out your uterus. Um, the range of insults is much worse. Some people who negatively reviewed my book said that something that I didn't say was that men survive shamings much better than women do. But I, I don't think that's true. I think whilst, the, whilst the, 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 the range of insults is much worse against women, that the, your gender doesn't necessarily mean you're going to survive a shaming better. And in fact, in the last couple of weeks, there's been at least three suicides linked to the Ashley Madison hack. Uh, at least three people have killed themselves. And, you know, when I read about those suicides, I thought... It's, 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 it's almost as if we would rather people kill themselves than for us to be bored. Anyway, then Justine's uh, employers got involved. Employee in question currently unreachable on an international flight. And that's when the anger turned to excitement. What we had was a delightful narrative arc. We knew something Justine didn't. Can you think of anything less judicial than this? Justine was asleep on a plane and unable to explain herself, and her inability to explain herself was a huge part of the hilarity. On Twitter that night, we were like toddlers crawling towards a gun. 
Somebody worked out exactly which plane she was on and they linked to a flight tracker website. And a hashtag started trending worldwide. Hashtag has Justine landed yet? Hipsters. The best thing to happen to my Friday night. And guess what? Yes, there was. And if you want to know what it looks like to have just discovered that you've been torn apart and your life will never be the same again and the people who destroyed you weren't crazy trolls but delightful people like us, this is what it looks like. Anyway, on that note, there's my uh, presentation of the uh, destruction of Justine Sacco. That intro was great, by the way. Thanks, John. Um, Thank you. Justine's Justine's okay now. It's like a year and a half later. And after a year, she finally got herself back together. She got a new job after a year. And then when my book came out, I noticed one person was like... It's funny. So my book came out in um, March. And the first thing that happened was Justine's story got exerted in the New York Times. And... What happened straight after that reminded me, actually, one time I was on a beach with my wife. Um, I got too close to some seagulls' eggs, and they, and they all started, like, circling. And, and then they started to, like, dive-bomb me, like, one by one. <laughs> and after the New York Times extract came out, it was like the turns were circling. And, like, one person wrote, um, well, her father's a billionaire, so I don't feel sorry for her. You know, her father sells carpets. Um, Time and again, what you see is you try and demonise or dehumanise the person that you, that you hurt. So you call them a sociopath or the daughter of a billionaire. Uh, and these things aren't true. Justine grew up working class. Um, but it's because we want to destroy people and not feel bad about it. And then somebody else, you know, while the turns were circling, somebody else said, well, she's got a new job, so it's not like her life's destroyed. And I'm like, after a year, after a year. So we sentenced Justine to a year in purgatory for the crime of some bad phraseology in a tweet, for a, for a badly worded liberal joke. We sentenced her to a year of, you know, the most appalling you know, mangling of her mental health. And the fact that she had managed to doggedly pull herself back together after a year was being used as evidence that it had been no big deal to start with. Mm. You know, we, we lost our minds. And, um, and then the turn started dive-bombing, and somebody said, well, John Ronson must be a fucking racist too. And I think in the book, actually, you recount a similar tweet that you did, um, except mm. it was much funnier, I, I, I think. Funnier, um. <laughs> that's word it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this, I, um, years ago, I was, like, stopped at Miami Airport and taken for secondary processing um, because there was a mafioso hitman on the run whose name was very similar to John Ronson. <laughs> um, anyway, so I was in this room and, and all these signs saying no cell phones, you know, no cell phone use. So I later wrote a column about it where I, for The Guardian where I said, um, you know, I'm sure they won't mind me using my cell phone. I mean, after all, I am white. And, you know, I sort of chuckled to myself and pressed send. Um, and now, I mean, I think that's a funnier joke and better worded but nonetheless i suddenly feel like christopher walken and in, in the end of the deer hunter like. <laughs> well, why why are some things picked up and piled in on as you say in the book you know where where something sort of hits at the right moment and suddenly someone is, is pilloried yeah. you know i think justin was the first great kind of 
mega shaming. Mm. Where, like, you know, everybody got involved, from trolls through to social justice people, through to hipsters, you know, so everybody united. Something extraordinary happened that night. I mean, I'm sure a lot of it was to do with timing, you know. It was like everybody was excited about Twitter, you know, in, in that period, like at the end of... Was it the end of 2013? You know, everybody was excited about Twitter. Um, and, I mean, it was extraordinary, right? The fact that she was asleep on a plane and unable to, to explain herself was was amazing for us. You know, people loved that. And if anybody... Uh, Helen Lewis, who's a great, smart feminist writer in Britain, reviewed my book for The New Statesman and said that she was on Twitter that night and she wrote, I'm not sure that her joke was intended to be racist. And she said straight away she got a kind of fury of tweets that said, well, you're just a privileged bitch too. So she said, so to her shame, she shut up and watched while Justine's life got torn apart. And then after it was over... Like the next day, the mainstream media all reported on it, and no one, even then, no one defended Justine. Even on day two, nobody defended Justine. It was like, mm. honestly, it was like the mainstream media was saying to social media, "Please don't hurt me." Mm. Mm. Uh, it's it's not just women, although you did say that you know women are often uh, attacked much more viciously than men. Um, one of the interesting cases you've got in the book is. Uh, Hank, the the programmer who's uh, at a conference and makes some pretty stupid jokes uh, and then finds himself being snapped and uh, this is put out through uh, Twitter and people pile in on him and attack him uh, quite viciously. And he loses his job. He he makes a joke about a... Um, there's there's a lot of stories about, about like, how, you know, when when somebody inappropriately shames somebody then all we can think to do in return is to inappropriately shame them. It's like, you know, we're so simple-minded, all we can think to do is, like, pile shame onto shame, like a dodgy builder, you know, covering cracks. And, um, in fact, instead of telling the Hank story, something happened after the book came out, which I've just written for the paperback, um, which is a very similar story, but can I, can I tell that one The instead? violin story? No, no, I mean, the violin story is goddamn awful as well. Um, no, this is what about an Israeli uh, civil servant. Um, the violin story was a woman on the Amtrak train. Does anybody remember the, the, the woman with the violin on the Amtrak train that crashed? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is unbelievable. So, so um, she, the train crashes in Philadelphia at 102 miles an hour. Eight people are killed. It's just carnage. Um, a woman emerges from the wreckage and tweets... Thanks a lot for doing Actually, um, can you put the slide back on? I think I've got it. Um, that's what she tweets. Um, so that says, thanks a lot for derailing my train. Can I, please find, can I please get my violin back from the second car of the train? And this is how Twitter responded. Um, I think in the early days of Twitter, we just said, oh, my God, are you OK? What was it like? You know, is there anything we can do to help? And this is what, how Twitter responded. Some spoiled asshole is whining about her violin being on that Amtrak train that derailed. People died on that train. She's an idiot. I hope the violin is crushed. I hope someone picks it up and smacks it against the train. Fuck that little bitch and her goddamn violin. I would slap the fucking taste out of her mouth if she was in reach. You're a little asshole. 
Uh, I hope you get your violin back from under the bleeding people. I hope it's destroyed. Your violin can be replaced. The dead are gone forever. Self-absorbed cunt. I won't be cutting her any slack. What a sickening skank. I hope her life is exactly what a nasty bitch deserves. Eight passengers dead, but she lives. No justice in the world. You know, I went on National Public Radio uh, the other week and I told that story. And the presenter said to me, well, what was she thinking tweeting something like that? What was she thinking? She's just been in a train crash. Mm. Somebody who had just been... You know, obviously, the reason why she was got was because she was perceived like Justine to have misused her privilege. Mm. But basically, what happened that night was that thousands of people who hadn't just been in a train crash were accusing somebody who'd just been in a train crash of misusing their privilege, you know? Mm. Um, Obviously... The misuse of privilege is a better thing to get people for than the kind of stuff we used to get people for, like having children out of wedlock. But the fact is, um, the phrase misuse of privilege is becoming a, it's becoming a devalued term. It's becoming a free pass to tear, about, tear apart pretty much anybody we like. Um, so the answer to, to that presenter's question, what was she thinking, tweeting something like that, is what the hell were we thinking... Mm. She wasn't thinking. She was responding with shock to a situation she'd just been in. And, and we, she was the audience, behaving, didn't yeah. really give her enough time to, to settle. Or... She was behaving like a human being. Mm. That's what she was doing. Did you um, want to tell us about Israel? Yeah, the Israeli story. Um, this is um, a civil servant called Ariel Rudis. Um, let me just read this. I've... I, I, uh, um, I've just finished writing this for the paperback, so I'm just going to read a couple of paragraphs that so, I've so never read is, before. This is a deleted scene from the book that even yeah. if you buy it upstairs, you won't get. This is a bonus. Yeah. <laughs> a 47-year-old Israeli government clerk called Ariel Runis was accused of racism. A black woman had been trying to renew her passport at his office in Tel Aviv. She later reported on her Facebook page that a female official had refused to allow her to use a special fast lane for people with babies. White people were being allowed to use the lane, but not her. So she complained to the office manager, Ariel Runis, who rudely brushed her off. Her Facebook post was shared 7,000 times. In response, Ariel Runis wrote up his own Facebook post. He wrote, "'Up until two days ago, my life looked rosy.' But each Facebook share is a sharpened arrow driven into my flesh. All my life's work has at once vanished with the thrust of a word disappeared. For years I have worked to make a name for myself, a name now synonymous with the vilest of terms, racism. This will be my fate from now on. He posted his message, then he put a gun to his head. His body was found a few hours later. Then the next morning, the woman who had posted the original message wrote... This morning I awoke to some of the worst news I have ever heard. I am sorry with my entire soul for the loss of a life. For years I experienced discrimination in Israel. The only time I told my story, a man was hurt. No one is more sorry than I am. If I could, I would keep silent this time too. And then a journalist wrote, The aftermath was disappointing. Instead of taking a sober moment to contemplate the seriousness of internet shaming, the powerful weapon was turned like a boomerang on the woman who posted the complaints in the first place. Mm. 
It's, and, and that's a Facebook story too, isn't it? Um, a lot of the book, the book focuses on uh, Twitter. And uh, in The Australian Today, you said Twitter is immensely flawed. It's uh, constantly getting things wrong, uh, constantly misjudging people and constantly labelling people as the worst possible thing. Mm. Um, it's, it, t- Twitter's 140 characters. Um, that's a really small amount of space to be a judge, a uh, psychologist in some cases. We call people psychopaths and we don't necessarily know what it is. Mm. Um, is it all online activity, do you think, because people feel like they're attacking someone faceless who they don't know, they feel freer? Well, I think there's certainly some of that, like the drone strike operator doesn't need to think about the village that he's just blown up and, you know, the snowflake doesn't need to feel responsible for the avalanche. But I think it's, it's mainly, it comes from a, from a, to a large extent, it comes from a good place. You know, time and time again, it's the desire to be seen to be compassionate that compels people to commit these profoundly uncompassionate acts. So with Justine, it was the desire to show other people and to prove to ourselves that we cared about people dying of AIDS in Africa that led us to destroy a woman while she was asleep on a plane and Mm. oblivious to her fate. Um, So time and again, it's that, you know, with 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 the violin woman, it was the desire to show that we cared about the eight people who were dead that we, you know, submitted this woman to a whole new train crash. Mm. Um, with Rachel Dolezal, which is, a, which is another one which, which I got into some difficulty over, um, the, um, Rachel Dolezal was the head of the Spokane NAACP and she had faked being black. Do people remember this story? So I thought... I, I woke up and I saw the story and, and it was, I saw it on The Guardian and I thought, this is the most incredible story I, I as a journalist i have a thousand questions you know a journalist's favorite question is why and i had a thousand questions and i thought i wonder how twitter is is responding to this mm. so i went on twitter and it was like you know basically you know racist she's a racist black face she's just like nike using hip-hop culture to sell shoes you know, this is racial appropriation, and then straight away, you know, somebody should rape the cunt, as that always happens. And, um, and I just thought, you know, I am, I am so sick of us constantly making damaged people our playthings. Mm. So I tweeted something like, you know, and Ariel Runis had just killed himself. Um, so I tweeted, and I thought, God, you know, if I was Rachel Dolezal... I would be reading every one of these tweets and thinking about killing myself. And um, nobody knew anything about Rachel Dolezal. I mean, you know, nobody knew her motive. She hadn't given any interviews. People had only heard her name for the first time, like, you know, minutes before. Mm. And of all the lists of possible motives for her doing what she did, everyone was going for, I thought, you know, some of the least plausible and, you know, most horrendous ones. I, I felt there was a lot of motives above, you know, d- deliberately wearing blackface to exploit people. Mm. So I tweeted something like, I'm feeling incredibly sorry for Rachel Dolezal and I hope she's okay. And the, the ferocity of the response towards me was, was, you know, pushed me off Twitter mm. for, for about a month, you know, white supremacist, uh, somebody imitating me, set, somebody set up a... a, a, a Something, somebody imitating me started praising Dylan Roof, the, the guy who killed the uh, people in Charleston. So for the first time ever, I complained to Twitter 
I said, you know, somebody impersonating me is, is praising Dylan Roof. And Twitter wrote back um, a form letter with misspellings saying it's not in violation of our impersonation policy. So I just thought <laughs> Twitter is a doomed company. Mm. Like, we're unpaid shaming in terms for a company that just doesn't give a flying fuck about us. Mm. Or spelling, either. That's yeah. an <laughs> important lesson there. I think it was, they, it was IT apostrophe S. Oh. I do that. <laughs> I do that and the autocorrect picks me up sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> um, as you were talking, you were talking about um, psychopathy and the role of the journalist and how uh, with Chainsaw Al, um, who, you know, if you've got pictures of predators on your walls, you're probably pretty close to being a psychopath. But you were saying you were reflecting you know, on yourself and your own sort of psychopathic mm-hmm. tendencies. It reminded me of um, a, a book by Janet Malcolm called The Journalist and the Murderer, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, it, in which she says, you know, the, the journalist is, uh, quote, a kind of confidence man preying on people's vanity, ignorance or loneliness, gaining their trust and betraying them without remorse. And I want... Because your, your journalism is very participatory. You're mm. in a lot of these stories. I've got to say, when I, when I first read Janet Malcolm's Journalist in the Merger, I, I thought to myself, you know, when I was kind of in my 20s, probably, I thought, ugh, what a nut. <laughs> now... <laughs> I agree with every word of what she said. <laughs> yeah. Do you find yourself compromised with your subjects like that? You, 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 know, you, you were saying about the Narnia quote, for example, you wrote that down in your notebook mm. and thought, great gag, and then... Uh, yeah. when and you it turned over to another page. Yeah, so, so. you couldn't see it. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you find yourself feeling compromised with your subjects and you know, that kind of personal relationship they, um, they have with al- you? Al- almost never anymore because you know, something, something kind of shifted in me a few years ago where I thought I'm not going to do that kind of journalism anymore. If, if, if I can't do empathetic, compassionate journalism where I'm seeing the world from the eyes of the person that I'm writing about, I won't take on the story. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, unless it's... I mean, it does put me in a dilemma because I want to be funny still. I don't want to stop being funny. <laughs> and, you know, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of human absurdity. Um, and I'm very happy to talk about my own ridiculousness. Uh, so, so it's like I'm not going to be a sap. <laughs> I should say, you know, I'm not going to be a sap, and, you know, it, you still want to speak truth to power, mm. which is what I'm doing in this new book. I'm speaking truth to power. It's just the, the, peop- the powerful people abusing their powers are us. Um, so that's the power I'm speaking truth to now. Mm. Uh, so you still want to be funny, you still want to, you know, highlight absurdities, but you don't want to be a mugger and you don't want to be a confidence trickster. Yeah. And I think the last time I did that would have been a long time ago now. I think that's the, the, the struggle that people have, you know, before they press send on a tweet or something. They think, I want to be funny, but I'm not sure everybody is thinking compassionately or empathetically. Mm. So how do we get those things back on Twitter? And let me just say one other thing about, like, with our Dunlap, actually, when you, when you, when you sort of analyse the jokes in the Chainsaw Al story, kind of the joke's on me, really, right? Because it's a story about how I've got drunk with my psychopath-spotting powers, you know, I'm... <laughs> You know, I'm sort of being manipulative, I'm being conniving. So I'm, so I'm kind of mucking myself in that story. And, of course, Al Dunlap 
is responsible for a huge amount of misery in the world. Al Dunlap, you know, he ended up, he, he can't be a CEO anymore because he got mired in accountancy fraud. You know, he ended up in a giant Florida mansion, whereas there's towns in Louisiana and Mississippi that are now ghost towns because Al Dunlap would come in and close the factory and put thousands of people out of work. So, you know, there's, there's legitimate targets too. Mm. Yeah. And, and- yeah, I, I suppose you would say he is a, a legitimate target and worth having shot at. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's certainly a legitimate target. Uh, and especially because I even... You know, Fast Company magazine wrote an article, The 50 Worst Corporate Psychopaths of All Time. And Al Dunlap was the only person on the list who's still alive. Um, <laughs> and, and I portrayed him in a much more... I still took the piss, and I still made it a funny, exciting story. Yet it's still more humanistic about him than, than mm. that. And, and Summer Psychopath Test, if you, if you haven't read it, it's a great book, um, looks at over-labelling and uh, how psychology has become, I think you call it the madness business, um, and how it is used not just to put labels on people but also to sell drugs. Um, and that's, a, that's a, an interesting conclusion to reach at the end of that book, isn't it, too? Where you... Yeah. Well, it's true, right? I mean... Um... You know, I'm living in New York at the moment, and, and it's, I don't know what it's like, things are like in, in, in Australia, but in New York, unlike Britain, it is very commonplace, especially in private schools, but I think in public schools too, for like if a kid's misbehaving, for the um, headmaster to call the parents in and say, get your kid on Prozac or, or we're going to expel them. Mm. You know, that, that's normal. You know, that's not an extreme story. And is that, that's a shift in from psychology from being, you know, th- therapy-based to being pharmaceutical. And uh, how have we allowed that to happen? <laughs> well, the DSM, I mean, uh, in, it, happened, it began in the mid-1970s with a man called Robert Spitzer. Um, it all, it, all of this really happened because of this one man, Robert Spitzer, um, whose mother was very miserable, lived unhappy, died unhappy... Um, Freud didn't help her, so Spitzer grew up with this kind of hatred of Freud, you know, all that kind of amateur sleuthing around the unconscious. Mm. So he decided to um, try and turn psychiatry into something more scientific-sounding. So he rented a room at Columbia. I mean, this is exactly why all of this happened. He rented a room at Columbia and invited all the like-minded people that he could think of and said, who's got ideas for you? you know, who's got new mental disorders? And somebody shouts out, I've got one, ADHD! And he'd go, what's the, what's the checklist? Go, ah, and, time. and that's how ADHD <laughs> came to be invented. That's how bulimia came to be in the DSM and so on. And I, and I, met, um, I met Spitzer. Um, he's still alive, but he's very sick with Parkinson's. But I met him... And I said, in those meetings, were there any proposed mental disorders that you rejected? And he said, yeah, there was one. Um, Atypical child syndrome. Uh, He he said the the problem uh, was when I asked the man proposing it what the shared characteristics were, uh, he said, well, that's very hard to say because the children are very atypical. Um, (laughs) He said uh, another one... Another one that they rejected was uh, masochistic personality disorder, which was going to be women who stayed in abusive relationships. He said, I got into terrible trouble with the feminists. So we changed the name to self-defeating personality disorder and put it in the appendix. (laughs) A lot of things ended up in the appendix. Yeah, internet addictions currently in the appendix. So what happened? So then, you know, Spitzer did did a deal with the pharmaceutical industry 
where, you know, the more mental disorders there were, the more drugs, you know, so the pharmaceutical industry got happier as the, as the DSM grew larger and larger. It's currently a, about 900 pages long, where it used to be a pamphlet. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, but I'm no R.D. Lang, you know. I'm, you know I, 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 I'm certainly a believer in, um, in pharmaceuticals and, and labelling, mm. you know, in certain cases. You know, it's more the over-labelling, I think you, you I mean, Jesus has helped me. You know, in fact, let me tell you a story. <laughs> I, um, I was, um, when my book first came out, um, I went to do this video for, like, for a website, and there was a doc- it was this in Brooklyn, and there was a doctor on before me doing her own video for her own book. And she said, so what's your book about? And I said, public shaming. And she said, um, oh, did you see that piece in the New York Times? And I said, I wrote it. And she <laughs> said, um, oh, you must be so happy. And I said, no, I'm not. And she said, why not? And I said, because people are accusing me of being a racist. So she said, so what do you want? So there was a silence. And I said, Xanax? <laughs> and... <laughs> She got out her pad and wrote me a prescription for sixty Xanax. Fr- not- worryingly, by the way, when I got home and told my son that story, he said he should have asked for OxyContin or whatever. <laughs> so he was better at Googling than yeah. you. Yeah, I'm like, a, how do you know that? And B, maybe I should. <laughs>